What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Safedine Amos is the leading researcher, communicator, and educator in the field of Bitcoin. And he has advised corporations on Bitcoin strategy and helped many investors with performing their due diligence on Bitcoin. He's the author of the Bitcoin Standard and has a new book, The Fiat Standard, available for pre-sale now. In this conversation, we discuss Bitcoin, inflation, the importance of debt, hard assets, monetary policy, political incentives, and the transition of monetary networks. I really enjoyed this conversation with Safetyn, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is Public Rec. They simply make the most comfortable clothes in the world. No lie. Public Rec is on a mission to make that comfort look good, too. Their fan favorite, Flex Short, is the ultimate crossover short you'll need all summer long. When I moved to Miami, I was looking for a pair of shorts that I could wear anywhere and also go out to dinner without Polina getting mad at me. And I found them. That's what Public Rec has. From the beach to the gym, this quick drying short has you covered. Comfort starts with a better fit. If you've got free shipping, free returns. Visit publicrec.com slash pomp and use code pomp at checkout for 20% off. Use code pomp at checkout for 10% off. Sorry, hat joking 10% off, not 20%. Visit publicrec.com slash pomp and use pomp at checkout for 10% off. Next up is crypto.com. 10 plus million users, and they claim they're the easiest place to buy and sell 100 plus cryptocurrencies. The crypto.com Visa card gives you up to 8% back instantly and 100% back on Spotify and Netflix. Also, crypto.com lets you earn high rates of return on stable coins and other assets. You get $25 when you download the crypto.com app today using code POMP. Again, 25 bucks when you download the crypto.com app today and use code POMP. You can also click on the link in the description to find out more. Last but not least are my friends over at OKCoin. OKCoin is one of the most popular licensed exchanges. They are the first to bring new cryptos to market, offering some of the lowest fees in the industry, an easy to use application, and an earn feature. You gotta check out their brand new, beautifully designed app. It really is amazing. And as of today, they also became the first US exchange to list various other assets as well. It's easier than ever to sign up, buy and trade crypto in just two minutes on OKCoin with credit or debit cards, or just link your bank account to the best new crypto assets. To get started, go to okcoin.com slash pomp. Again, okcoin.com slash pomp. All right, let's get into this episode of Safety, and I hope you guys enjoy this one. And I can't wait until you get to the end. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Safety, how are you? I'm very good. Thank you for having me. No, thank you for doing this. Uh, Let's just jump right into it. You've got a new book coming out, uh, which is a play on words from the last title, uh, The Fiat Standard. Tell us uh, kind of one, why are you writing a second book? I feel like that's not an easy task. And then two, uh, what's the book about? Well, the short answer for why you write the book is that the first one seemed to work. And so, you know, you follow market signals. (laughs) People like the first one, you give them more of what they like. Um, And it is a play on the title, but it's also more than just a play on the title. It's kind of like a play on the whole book in that I take the uh, way in which I studied and approached uh, the Bitcoin standard in which I studied uh, Bitcoin and I apply it to fiat, you know, 
Um, so think about if you were trying to explain fiat as if it was a digital currency, how would you explain it? What would the white paper look like? Uh, what's the dev team? Uh, well, who runs a node? How can you run a node? If you think about fiat in these terms, I think because Bitcoin is such an advanced form of money and it was designed by a very brilliant engineer and it's been worked on by a lot of brilliant engineers since then, I think it's a great example of everything that you need in order to make a monetary system function. And so then you can look at fiat through that lens and you'll get a lot of clarity about how fiat actually functions. So that was the motivation for writing this book. As I started to think about fiat as another digital currency, and I'm trying to explain and understand uh, what it is doing and how it functions, it actually, I found, uh, I found it to be very useful uh, as, as a way of uh, understanding the fiat system. And so when you start thinking about the fiat system, most people think of it as two completely diametrically opposed systems, right? One is transparent, decentralized, open source, uh, programmatic, uh, et cetera. And the other is basically the exact opposite. Is that your general read on the two systems or do you have some sort of uh, kind of more nuance to the comparison? Um, there's there's a lot to the comparison. So I think the perhaps the most uh, powerful tool is when you try and think about how mining works in fiat. So in Bitcoin, we know that you know the miners solve the proof of work problems and then they get issued new coins and there's a schedule for how many coins they get. In gold, we know that you mine gold by digging into the ground and then refining it. But in fiat, if you ask yourself how is fiat mined? It's a very deep rabbit hole. And when you start thinking about it and start thinking about the significance in terms of, you know, just think about how much of a big deal mining Bitcoin is. And then you transport, you, you, you apply that to fiat and you can see why uh, lending is such a big deal. Because the way that uh, mining fiat works is through lending. When you go to the bank and you ask them for a million dollars so you can buy a house, the bank isn't taking $1 million that somebody else had deposited in that bank and giving them to you. The bank is making mining essentially new fiat. So if they can get you to borrow, they get to make new fiat money. That's the equivalent of solving a proof of work problem. It's finding a lender, finding a borrower who wants to borrow and who fulfills the criteria for borrowing and then being able to issue the loan that allows them to make more money. When you think about it this way, the fiat system begins to make a lot of sense. So that's why everybody's in debt. That's why in fiat, you know, no matter how much money you get, you just keep rolling it over into bigger and bigger debt. People don't make money so that they can pay off their debts. People make money so that they can take on bigger debts. So individuals are in debt. Corporations are in debt. Governments are in debt at all levels, municipal and national and everything. Everybody needs to get in debt because when you get in debt, you know, if you wanted to buy the house uh, with cash, if you just had a house and you wanted to buy it with cash, well, that's, let's say, a million dollar house. But if you're able to get it uh, with a mortgage, then the bank is going to effectively make $800,000 out of thin air. You'll put up, say, 200000 up front. But then the bank managed to make 800,000. So they can cut you a sweet deal here because it's not like you're uh, taking up, uh, you, you know, it's not like you're taking up their capital. They just get to make new capital. So if buying a house can be used as a way to mine fiat, it's going to be very profitable for the miner and they'll cut you in on that. And that's why it makes sense for everybody to buy their houses in debt, everybody buys uh, their houses and their major expenses. Um, you get into debt and you get a better deal than if you pay cash, because obviously, you know, over time, the value of the money declines 
and the value of the repayment of the loan continues to decline. So when you think about, uh, let's talk nation state debt versus individual debt and corporate debt, there, there's different players in the market that are all taking on debt. Is it fair to say it's all the exact same structure? So the government takes on debt because they're going to be able to pay it off with cheaper dollars in the future, same as the individual buying that house or, or some other good. Um, is, is that kind of a fair way to categorize it in your opinion? Um, I mean, it's not exactly the same because uh, it depends on your credit worthiness and it depends on your political connections. And so the issue here, of course, is that it, this isn't uh, this isn't an advanced and fair system like Bitcoin, where anybody can solve the proof of work problems and get rewarded. And the only way to guarantee that you can make more uh, solutions for the proof of work is to mine more efficiently and have more miners and have more electricity. Well, in fiat, it doesn't quite work that way in order to mine fiat. Basically, you need to be well connected uh, to the Federal Reserve, to the government, to the central bank in whatever country you're in. And the way it works is uh, government obviously gets to borrow at the lowest rate because government has the advantage of being able to um, tax and inflate uh, the currency to pay off the debt. So therefore, you'll see that they get to borrow at the lowest rate everywhere. And then everybody else's um interest rate will be a little bit higher. So effectively, you know, you, you, people are mostly probably familiar with the term the Cantillon effect. And the Cantillon effect refers to the fact that when you print new money, the recipients of the new money uh, benefit at the expense of the people who are holding the old money. And the people who receive it earlier benefit the most. And then as the money trickles through the rest of the economy, the benefits decline. And then uh, the people who receive it later um, don't even benefit from it. They are hurt from the inflation that it causes. So in the case of fiat, the way the Cantillon effect is essentially, the way that the Cantillon effect works is essentially through interest rate. Um, people who get lowest interest rates on their debt benefit, and so that's government, and uh, the biggest borrowers in society, which are primarily the biggest, uh, the biggest financial institutions and banks, and then the bigger corporations that can borrow from uh, the banks at the lowest interest rates, but then as you move forward, as you move towards, you know, the uh, hoi polloi and the peasants, the interest rates go up and you are effectively uh, missing out on the benefits of this. You're not being able to catch up with inflation. And if you think about inflation in terms of CPI, then you could get the impression that a lot of people are able to keep up with inflation. But of course, that's entirely dependent on the kind of goods that you include in the CPI. And that does not include the desirable goods that are highly competitive because they're rare. You know, you can't have um, Miami Beach real estate and uh, Manhattan real estate in the CPI because that's always going up much faster than the CPI. And the best healthcare, the best medicine, the best, all of the things that are very scarce by their nature because they're very high quality, all of these things are rising at a much faster pace than the CPI. And so the only people who can keep up are the ones who are the best connected. So essentially government and the big banks and the people who are, uh, you know, the people who run these things. So we spent the first half of the show talking about what I call inflate gate, which is just the uh, controversy around inflation and what the real numbers are. Do you have an opinion in terms of how off the official numbers are? Uh, or maybe you believe that the official numbers are correct? 
No, I think they're uh, definitely off, but I'm I'm definitely with Michael Saylor on, uh, I think Marcus Saylor is absolutely brilliant in the way that he explains inflation as being a vector rather than a scalar quantity. So you can't just summarize inflation with one number. You can't say that, um, you know, the economy's average basket of goods has gone up by 3% this year or 5%. It doesn't mean anything because that's entirely dependent on what you include in the basket of goods. And um, so you essentially just measuring what you've included but i think a more relevant metric is to look at goods individually and you see the rise in the individual prices of goods then you can see that then you can portray inflation as a vector where each uh each good has its own inflation rate and so in that respect you'll see that inflation is very high in prime real estate as i was mentioning it's very high in luxury goods it's very high in um, good education um, good credentialed education all of these things continue to rise at much higher rates than the cpi what is rising at the rate of the cpi are the main things that are included in the cpi are essentially things that are low quality that are available um, because that, that don't rise that are not very responsive to inflation because they can be produced at a large scale very quickly in response to increases in demand and so the best example in my mind is like junk food um, there are very little limits on how much more junk food you can do there are a lot of factories out there that can just churn out very large quantities of junk food and so if there's an increase in inflation they can increase the production and the price won't go up by much um same i think is true of uh, cheap goods you know mass-produced cheap goods these things if you look at them you know you'll see that the uh, rise in their prices probably are similar to what you get in the cpi one two three four percent per year per year um, digital goods on the other hand uh, they get cheaper every year so their inflation rate is negative you know if you look at the cost of um, disk space or the cost of uh, using google or using youtube um, you know the all, all these technological things keep getting better and uh, they keep uh, getting cheaper over time but that's just technology that's advancing but uh, I think the real inflation shows up in uh, the scarce goods and I think another brilliant insight from Michael Saylor is you see it in bonds you see it in how much do you have to buy what is the size of the bond that you need to buy in order to be able to afford retirement and so if you're thinking of retiring and you want let's say 20 years of income how much do you need to buy uh, how, how much bonds do you need to buy for 20 years of uh, retirement? And given the collapsing yield of bonds, the price that you need to spend on these things is enormous. And so that's going up much faster than the CPI. So quibbling over the little numbers of, you know, is it two or 2.5 or three or 3.5 or five or whatever, um, is I think kind of missing the big picture. And the big picture is that uh, for the things that matter, for the things that people actually want, for the things that uh, can secure their future, you know, a house in a good neighborhood, uh, and a good education for your children uh, and, and a house in a neighborhood that has a good school uh, retirement all of these things they're just getting expensive at a much faster rate than the cpi at a rate at a rate that closely approximate the approximates the increase in m2 in the money supply when you think about um what to do is it 
just go buy Bitcoin? Is it by real estate? Is it by gold, other types of commodities? Um, you know, I think you and I are both sympathetic to the view of the world that like inflation is uh, much higher. Um, there's unlikely to be anything kind of stopping this from continuing, just given the, sh- the macro structure um, and, and, and kind of, uh, we talked earlier about like, the people who are in charge have no choice. They know that they have to solve short-term problems at the expense of long-term damage because that is what the incentive system drives. So it's not them individually their fault. It's just kind of the the system that they're in. But what does the individual do, in your opinion? So I guess uh, the moral of the Bitcoin standard, you know, the lesson of the Bitcoin standard was that Bitcoin's number goes up and therefore buy Bitcoin. I think the uh, the lesson of the fiat standard is fiat's number go down, fiat is number go down technology. And the best way to protect yourself from that is to short fiat and to borrow fiat. And I think... Um, it, 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 it's given me a lot of appreciation. And I, and, and I say this as somebody who used to uh, think that debt is just a bad thing and I don't want to get into debt and I want to just have savings. And this is why Bitcoin was such a great find for me because it was a form of saving that worked because before that you could use gold and gold was uh, not very good. You know, it's been basically flat over the last 10 years. So when I found Bitcoin, it was very good because it's a form of saving that you can uh, use. But now I truly understand that under a fiat system, if you're not getting in debt, you're essentially subsidizing everybody else for getting into debt. And so if you're the sucker who buys their house in cash, you're overpaying for the house and you're subsidizing everybody else who's buying their house on a mortgage. Now, of course, that doesn't mean everybody should go out and max all their credit cards and get all the debt that they can. Um, you know, the, the, the flip side of this is that it, it's not like holding Bitcoin, you know, holding negative fiat balances is a highly stressful thing. It means you have payments to make and you need to be able to make sure that your cash flows can cover all of your payments because if they don't, you could lose your collateral, you could get kicked out of your house or whatever it is. So uh, it's a risky business, but basically this is, um, I think this is the lesson of uh, the fiat standard that it puts everybody on a treadmill where you need to be constantly highly stressed and making payments and close to insolvency and highly vulnerable to any kind of shock that can affect your business because you can't have savings and you need to have uh, you need to have debt. And so everybody's more fragile. And it's um, in a sense, it's like um, walking in a, a field of landmines. You never know when something might happen and your business uh, misses a couple of payments and then your business is gone. So, you know, you have to be very careful with it. But I think I, I see the case for getting into debt in fiat. And I think, you know, I used to live in Lebanon. And I saw the implosion uh, of the Lebanese economy. And, you know, it's been absolutely terrible for people who had savings in the banks. And it's terrible for people who lost their jobs. But there's one group of people that made out fine out of it, which is people who had Lebanese lira denominated debt. So I have friends who are essentially uh, paying off the remaining of, you know, the the next 20 years of their mortgage, they're going to be paying off. Uh, something like 10% or 5% of their original payment because their payments were denominated in the lira. So this is really the way to protect yourself against uh, fiat. And if you listen to what Michael Saylor says, you know, he says you should not sell your Bitcoin ever. You do what rich people do. And apparently this has been something that rich people have known for quite a while and I've only just discovered it now. 
which tells you a lot, I guess. Uh, but this is how rich people do it, you know, and this is what also Robert Kiyosaki uh, talks about. You know, you want to get into as much debt as possible at as low a rate as possible, as, soon, as long as you're sure that you can cover payments. And then you don't have to sell anything. You keep accumulating hard assets. That's the way to do it. Accumulate hard assets and get into debt in fiat. That's the cheat code, basically. You want all your assets to be uh, hard or Bitcoin, uh, ideally, and you want your debt to be uh, fiat. Yeah, what you're basically describing is the whole idea of, you know, uh, especially in America, parents always telling people like, go get in real estate. You, everyone makes money in real estate. And really the entire secret to real estate is you're borrowing money uh, to buy an asset. And then if you're renting it out, using somebody else's money to make the payments and therefore maybe you have a down payment or, you know, kind of one time payment or, or some small percentage, but you're essentially using financial engineering and, and this mechanism to end up owning the hard asset. But it's either borrowed money or somebody else's money, and then you end up with the asset at the end. Like that has been a time-tested strategy for you know literally decades, if not centuries. Um, now it's just as people start to understand it from a currency perspective in the fiat world, and also see something like Bitcoin. Michael Saylor is executing, uh, you know, what I think most people would have referred to as like this speculative attack. Uh, you know, converting that fiat in, into a hard asset, but really it's no different than if he was borrowing money to buy real estate and he was a real estate business. Right. I mean, it, it's almost identical to, you know, a, a very similar thing. Yeah. And the difference, of course, and, and that's kind of the, um, the, the the conclusion of the book is that Bitcoin is real estate on steroids. It, you know, real estate does 5, 10, 15 percent a year or something like that. Bitcoin's been averaging 200 percent a year over the last 10 years. And this year, you know, Bitcoin only needs to end the year at 51,000 in order to continue the 200% annual uh, growth rate on average over the last 11 years. So if this trend continues, you know, it's, uh, I think that's going to be the most interesting question in the future, which is how do we deal with uh, what happens when fiat is inflating because everybody's borrowing fiat because they're buying Bitcoin. And so people are accumulating Bitcoin by borrowing fiat. It's, um, I think, one kind of... Um, perhaps sad uh, conclusion from it is that the people who have fiat privilege are going to transfer their fiat privilege into Bitcoin privilege by uh, borrowing uh, large amounts of fiat at low interest rates and using it to buy a lot of Bitcoin. Um, I think another potential possibility is that we might get some kind of um, government restriction on the ability of people to borrow and buy Bitcoin. So they may not clamp down on Bitcoin or make Bitcoin criminalized, but they might make it so that uh, if you have Bitcoin, you don't get to borrow, you don't get access to capital markets. I think we could perhaps see something like this at some point, but I think uh, because, you know, otherwise it's just, you can't really see how else this would go. You know, people are just going to see more and more Michael Saylor's spring up and they're going to all want to do it. And everybody's going to max out their mortgage and their uh, credit card and everything that they can do so that they are in as big a fiat debt as possible so that they can stack as much sats as possible. You know, that just means much more uh, dollar inflation and much more um, Bitcoin number go up. Uh, uh, so it'll be very interesting to watch how this unfolds over the next few decades. So you're, you're pretty convinced that they're going to stop people from borrowing to be able to buy? No, I don't think so. I, I mean, I'm, I, I'm agnostic about the possibility. I don't know what the probability is, but I think this it's is an one kind of attack vector. Yeah, it's an option. I think it's one way they could attack Bitcoin. I think we're probably past the stage where they could just criminalize it like drugs and go after people 
door to door to check if they have Bitcoin. Um, but this is perhaps one way in which the empire can fight back. Yeah. When you start to think about um, kind of the fiat system, what do you expect uh, the conclusion here? Is there like a showdown, the final boss, you know, that type of uh, of thought process? Or are you more sympathetic to the idea that uh, over time we'll get more Cynthia Lummises uh, in the Senate or Warren Davidson's in Congress? And they'll kind of get educated and they realize, hey, look, you know, this is actually a pretty good transparent system and, and they'll become proponents and advocates. And over time, you just need more and more of those people in positions of power and influence and they kind of start the the slow adoption like is it more confrontational or is it more kind of over time you just slowly get people uh familiar and educated with the asset and with the system and and that leads to the ultimate adoption i think the uh you know in, in the book i discussed both both possibilities and um you know i don't have a crystal ball to be able to tell which one's going to happen but i'll say up until COVID hit, I was leaning much more toward the fact that this is just going to be, and, and that was kind of the conclusion of the book that I was getting at when I first started writing the book, which is Bitcoin is the peaceful monetary upgrade. It's like you got a smart software engineer into your house and he took out your old clunky Windows uh, 7 or whatever it is that has been messing up everything in your life. And he just uninstalled it and gave you a brand new operating system that works. In a sense, you could think of Bitcoin as being like that. And I could see, I could make the case for, um, for why Bitcoin allows us to unravel fiat relatively peacefully because people generally think all right well bitcoin can bitcoin will lead to uh people dropping demand for the dollar and then people not holding as much dollar and so if demand for the dollar drops then the price of the dollar drops and then we get hyperinflation but that's not exactly how hyperinflation happens hyperinflation usually happens because of an increase in the supply you know if you look at places where the currency collapses it has always been uh, it has always coincided with massive money printing. There's always a point in the money supply where it does the hockey stick and then the value of the currency starts crashing. So you never get hyperinflation because demand declines. You know, if the currency drops 95%, that's not because people in the country had dropped their demand for the currency by 95%. It's because the uh, quantity of the money supply has gone up tenfold or something like that. So um, in that sense, I think people might be missing one thing which Bitcoin does, which is potentially, while yes, it might lead to more and more uh, debt creation, but there is a case to be made that it might actually lead for the to the opposite, which is that um, people start stacking, um, start holding Bitcoin instead of holding debt assets. So at the end of the day, in order for you to borrow, you need somebody to lend. And um, usually, uh, in, you know, if you think about why there's such a huge uh, supply of uh, loans out there, it's because people want to hold debt as an asset on their balance sheet, and particularly bonds. And so if you run a company, you have your cash balance or your treasury reserve. Usually you have some uh, cash, but you usually have a lot of bonds. That's what people use bonds for because it doesn't have equity risk and it's senior to equity in terms of uh, if there is um, a bankruptcy. So it's a more safe asset to keep on your treasury. But if people start realizing, you know what, we don't want to hold bonds, we don't want to be lenders, and we'd rather just hold Bitcoin. If, and that's kind of the, the other side of the Michael Saylor strategy, which is, all right, he's borrowing himself, but 
um, he's not holding treasuries anymore. And so there might come a point in which, uh, you know, the demand, the, the supply for people like Michael Saylor to borrow declines because everybody's doing a Michael Saylor by stacking Bitcoin rather than holding bonds. And so, so we get a decline in the demand for the dollar because people are not holding dollars and they're holding more uh, Bitcoin. But we also get a decline in the supply of the dollars because people are not borrowing as much. People are not issuing as much loans because they're just holding on to Bitcoin. And so that way we can kind of make the um, fiat house of cards unravel peacefully where you could think you know you can take out take apart a house of cards if you take uh, one card supporting the other you can remove the two of them at the same time you do it at each level and then you could unravel the house of cards neatly and put it back in the um in in the in the card box uh, and that might be what bitcoin does it increases demand for Bitcoin, decreases demand for holding dollars and decreases the supply of new dollars that are created. And so what happens is that the price of Bitcoin goes up, the Bitcoin based economy goes up and the fiat based economy starts shrinking in size relative to the Bitcoin based economy until it's uh, essentially shrinks into nothingness. And there is a case to be made, I think, for the fact that this can unravel peacefully because when you get hyperinflation, the reason you get hyperinflation is that at any country in which there's hyperinflation, it's not just that the currency is being destroyed by the central bank. It's also that the currency is being destroyed and people have no alternative. So people in Lebanon can't just switch to the dollar. They can't just have an entire financial system that operates based around the dollar and, you know, just uh, get rid of their liras, buy dollars and start over again and start doing all of their accounting in dollars. That's not possible. You don't have dollar banks in Lebanon. But with Bitcoin, and you know, still admittedly, Bitcoin is still a little too early to help a place like Lebanon because you don't have the infrastructure. But in five years, 10 years time, as inflation becomes a bigger problem, you have a ready-made alternative. And so inflation doesn't have to be catastrophic in the long run uh, among the more advanced economies that are probably going to be a few more years before they experience uh, very bad um, inflation outcome and at that point bitcoin is just a ready-made lifeboat uh, lifeboat slash space rocket where you know once it finally dawns upon you that um, this fiat boat that i'm on is not doing very well you just upgrade you move to bitcoin you start getting paid in bitcoin you start making your payments in bitcoin and more and more people do this and then you know maybe the transition you know you people lose some money in the transition but as long as you're able to upgrade to an operational system that is uh, functional then uh, maybe that doesn't have to be catastrophic but i think um, you know, since I started writing the book with the coronavirus uh, hysteria that has happened and the insane way in which governments have responded, both in terms of their uh, monetary uh, policies as well as their uh, public health policies, I think we may be in for a rougher landing because, uh, uh, you know, they're printing so much, the money printers go and burr very fast that uh, who knows what's going to happen. You know, we may be witnessing very fast inflation before uh, Bitcoin is large enough to support a very large number of people, before people can make this transition. And so we might not be able to unravel that uh, house of cards very uh, smoothly. Joe, John, what questions do you guys have? 
Yeah, I can go first. Uh, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. I was looking at uh, kind of some of the information on the book website, and I got a laugh out of Michael Saylor's recommendation that he uh, he said the best recommendation or the best compliment I can give is that I read this book and then bought four hundred twenty five million dollars of Bitcoin, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought uh, was probably the best compliment you could get. So that's awesome. But m- my question is kind of uh, was kind of answered, I-, I guess, a little bit previously. But I want to see if you can kind of go a little deeper on it, which is about twenty percent of uh, American adults currently own Bitcoin here in the United States. So I'm curious, like, how do we get to 40%? How do we get to 60%? How do we go higher? Is it strictly education? Is it uh, regulatory changes? Is it adoption by public facing figures, maybe politicians, etc? Just how do you think about that? First of all, I really doubt it's 20%. I think um, I saw a Gallup poll that said 6%. Uh, and I think um, that that's probably more realistic. But yeah, I um, in my mind, I think the way that Bitcoin gains in adoption is through number go up technology. It's the best advertisement. It's the value proposition. And I think the more uh, bad monetary policy is, the better of an advertisement it is for Bitcoin. And I think this really is the... Uh, this really is the best advertisement. I think, you know, all the work that we're doing on Twitter, um, memeing and posting all day is great. I, I salute the effort of all the uh, meme warriors out there. <laughs> but I think realistically, um, you know, the most powerful meme is the fact that the price goes up. The most powerful meme is that you hear about Bitcoin and you hear about a price and then you hear about a crash and then you gloat and you're like, ah, ha, ha, it was at 1,000 and now it's at 200. Ha, 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 what a stupid joke. And and the next time you hear about it, it's at 25,000 and then it smacks you in the face and then you start paying attention. I think that's ultimately, I mean, you can't buy that kind of marketing. There's just nothing like it. Uh, it's, it's why I call it, you know, the unique and proprietary number go up technology. Nobody can copy this. I think that's really what it's going to take. And I think um, another one powerful advertisement uh, for Bitcoin, I think, is going to be central bank digital currencies because it's... Um, it's such an enormous concession of frame by the central bank. It's amazing. Like they've just gone, oh yeah, you guys have better technology, but it's fine because we're going to make it better than you. Um, so they've just basically admitted that our technology is better than theirs. And that's just uh, forcing a lot of people to start to think more about Bitcoin. And I think when they roll out these central bank digital currencies, which are going to be, you know, essentially bringing the uh, Soviet Goss Bank model in the People's Bank, the central bank of the Soviet Union, in which everybody in the country had an account with the central bank. And it was one central bank that, uh, I mean, it was literally a central bank. There was just one bank and everybody had an account with it and it controlled all aspects of your life. Um, if we have that, I think, you know, you can imagine just how much politically that's going to be abused by the um, people in power who are going to use it to impose all kinds of uh, ideological positions that they have. So you can say goodbye to buying meat or buying fuel uh, with your uh, central bank digital currency, because we all know that, uh, you know, meat is boiling the oceans and uh, your car is causing the um, Himalayas to melt and the oceans to acidify and you're killing all the fish. So you're going to be banned from doing that. And people who want to stay warm in the winter and people who like to eat meat are going to have to start looking into serious uh, alternatives. And uh, that's, you know, if if the number go up misses them, then I think the central bank digital currencies are going to uh, get us all the rest. 
I like that. John, what you got? Yeah, thanks for doing this. Uh, congratulations on your new book. I know that's not an easy feat. Never, <laughs> never wrote one myself, so I'm, ex I'm excited to uh, excited to read it. But I'm curious if you could elaborate kind of what you think about debt um, versus Bitcoin. You talked about some people even taking it out, right? What you think about it in your like personal portfolio and then what people should think about it. I know everyone's situation is a little bit different, but um, I hope you can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I, I hesitate to give financial advice because I'm just not very good at that stuff. I'm not a finance person. I, an academic who reads old old books and uh, uh, tries and to get the insights from those books and apply them to modern things. And I'm very hesitant to give people advice. Um, I'll say, like, you know, the case for stacking sats as much as you can is indisputable and you just uh, hold bitcoin for four years at least and there's no way that you're going to be down i was just running some numbers today there's never been a day in which bitcoin was down uh on a four-year uh, timeline the lowest it has ever been at four years was 4.2 multiple on a four-year basis and the average has been something like 300x the average over the last five years is around 20x so basically if you hold bitcoin for four years you're going to get a 20x or so and if you're stacking you're roughly you know if you're periodically stacking you're going to be doing a 20x over four years which i think is phenomenal and you know um it's kind of ridiculous to be trying to beat that and to maximize on it but <laughs> you know people always try ridiculous things i think there is a good case perhaps to be made for getting into some debt in order to stack more bitcoin as long as you know for sure that you have um, good cash flow that can cover it and that you have good collateral so you wouldn't want to take on large amounts of debt that could get you liquidated but i think you know perhaps a small amount um you know and for most people this is likely to be best achieved through getting a mortgage um if you if you're considering buying a house a cash outright versus buying it via mortgage i think um, you'll be able to probably stack more sats if you well almost definitely you'll have more satoshis if you are uh, borrowing to buy the house rather than paying in cash i think so there probably is a case for integrating debt into uh, into your portfolio more than just stacking sats and i think um, because ultimately, if you're not doing that, you're effectively subsidizing people who are doing it. Like you're forced to play this game because there's only one currency and there's a monopoly central bank and it's enforcing its interest rates and you have to play that game. So uh, you either play it by subsidizing others or you take advantage of it yourself and you try and get yourself a piece of the pie. Safety, when you start to think about um kind of the milestones moving forward. Are there specific things that you're looking for uh, to signal either adoption, uh, cracks in the armor of the existing system, uh, or potentially that uh, that harmonious uh, transition as more and more people start to uh, to understand Bitcoin? Or is there anything that kind of sticks out in your mind as uh, these will be uh, kind of milestones? Maybe a public company buying Bitcoin, putting on a balance sheet was one of those, uh, but are there any others that you look at? Yeah, I think public companies is a big one. I think perhaps the next big, um, the next big milestone ahead of us might just be the point at which Bitcoin becomes bigger than U.S. Treasuries. At this point, the U.S. debt is around twenty-nine trillion dollars, and Bitcoin is around uh, eight hundred billion dollars. So there's still about a thirty, forty-fold difference. So Bitcoin is only about two point five percent 
of the uh, of the treasury uh, of the U.S. treasuries, and I think this is significant because when people are going to be thinking about treasury reserve assets that they want to use they're always thinking about what is the most liquid asset and the u.s treasuries are um you know the liquid the treasury asset of choice because they're the most liquid it's a 30 trillion dollar um liquid market and uh, if you have some treasuries you're not gonna be uh, in a lot of trouble trying to sell them relatively and at least that's how it's worked over the past uh, 50 60 years of uh, fiat but I think the moment when Bitcoin becomes bigger than the treasury market, and of course, and, and, and realistically, Bitcoin doesn't even need to become bigger than the entire treasury market because the entire treasury market has a lot of different maturities. So it's not exactly like you're buying one uh, good, like one US treasury bond is not equal to one US treasury bond. One of them has a five-year maturity that was issued yesterday. The other one has a 15-year maturity that was issued 10 years ago. So they, they're, they're different in, um, and they all have different markets at which they're trading. So uh, Bitcoin is just one asset. So one Satoshi is one Satoshi. And so it's already bigger than big chunks of the U.S. Treasury market. But when it starts becoming comparable and when, you know, when it's at 10, 15 trillion dollars and the Treasury market is at 30, I think a lot of people are going to pay attention to it because at that scale, you can get more liquidity by liquidating your Bitcoin uh, you know, you can you can sell your Bitcoin and expect less slippage with your Bitcoin than you would with treasury bonds. And I think that's going to be a major turning point at that point. You know, if Bitcoin has been around for 15, 20 years or so and it has a liquidity that is uh, close or comparable to the size of the U.S. Treasury market. At that point, it's going to be very hard for CFAs across the world to justify not taking a position in Bitcoin. At that point, it's going to really just be the bitter dead end. There are no coiners that are uh, you know, stuck out in, um, in, in, in fiat land and refusing to deal with it. But vast majority of pragmatic people are just going to recognize this is a much better asset and I think might be a, a major tipping point. It, it, it might really be a major tipping point. I, uh, I tend to agree with you, uh, which I think my brothers do as well. Uh, before we let you go, where can we send people, uh, one, obviously, to follow you on uh, Twitter, but also to uh, buy the new book, The Fiat Standard? Yeah, you can pre-order it right now and uh, read it. You will get the full draft of the book. It's uh, being uh, sent to the printers soon. The book will be out in December, but you can read it right now if you pre-order it. You can pre-order the uh, digital copy or the uh, audio copy or the physical copy. And you can also uh, support my self-publication effort by buying a signed copy and getting your name listed as a supporter in uh, the uh, book. Um, and you can do that on my website safedean.com and for that page in particular just go to slash tfs safedean.com slash tfs for the fiat standard so there you can pre-order the book and you'll get the digital copy today and you'll be able to read it it's not entirely final but it's very close to final awesome well i highly suggest people go check it out first if you haven't read the bitcoin standard i suggest that if you uh, haven't yet pre-ordered the fiat standard definitely suggest you do that as well thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to do this i literally could talk to you for hours uh i feel like you just got a great uh, great grasp of what's happening in the world and kind of where we're going so please keep it up and uh we'll do this again soon awesome thank you so much for having me guys have a good day thanks sounds good thank see you, you.